Would you turn with me this evening, please, to the first chapter of the book of the Acts? A number of years ago, I decided that I would wish to, to preach to us as a congregation through the Acts of the Apostles. And then I decided that in order to get to Acts, we should begin with Luke, which is what we did over the course of two or three years, not so long ago. And now we come to Acts and chapter 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptised with water, but you shall be baptised with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit shall come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew... James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Amen. Let's bow before God once more. Lord God, as we begin to consider these things, we plead for your help from heaven that at every stage of our tracing the work of the risen Christ by his spirit, we might be instructed, that we might be careful in our understanding, that we might be fruitful in our grasp of the truth, that you would guide us even this evening, and that as we go through portions and passages, some of which will readily yield their riches, 
some of which will be hard to wrestle with. We ask, O God, that the same spirit by whom these words were given would be our present help and our guide. Lord, help us now then, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of the Acts is not really just a sequel in the sense that it's not intended just to tie off a few loose ends. It's not even, properly speaking, a conclusion in the sense that it just finishes off the story. It is both a continuation and a confirmation of the things which Luke began to tell us in his Gospel. There are various ways of understanding the relationship between the Gospel of Luke and the acts that Luke recorded. You might remember, and we we mentioned this when we looked at Luke, that Luke begins the greatest scope. You've got the Roman Empire and you've got the uh, appointments and the announcements that come from Rome. And then you work your way in until you arrive at last in Jerusalem where the Lord Jesus Christ is crucified for the sins of his people. And then from the the point of Jerusalem, you've got here in the book of Acts, the gospel now going forth until by Acts 28, it is being preached in that very Rome from which the announcements at the beginning of Luke came. So you've got this sort of gospel rebound. You've got the, the history from Rome all the way into Jerusalem. And then beginning at Jerusalem, the gospel is preached until it goes out through Judea and Samaria and comes to the very end of the earth. You might also remember and note the the kind of overlap that occurs at the end of Luke and at the beginning of the Acts, uh, like a hinge that's been slotted together. There are similar notes right at the end of Luke's Gospel to those that we read here right at the beginning of the Acts, serving as the hinge between these two books. Or you could say they're like the two wings of one gospel bird teaching us about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are then intimately related. They belong together. It's at least possible that they are so constructed, given their almost identical length, to be written on two scrolls of the same size. So a real two-volume work. We should begin by remembering that they have the same author. It is Luke, the beloved physician. He is a collector. He is a curator. He is a collator. He's a chronicler. He's a true historian. He's drawing together the information that has been uh, passed around and and spoken in various places. He, He undertakes Interviews. He engages with eyewitnesses so that he writes down under the influence of the Holy Spirit this compiled history. But as you read through the Acts, you will see that the man who was an observer and a chronicler before is now very much a participant. As you read through it for yourself, you'll notice sections where you change from they to we, because Luke is very much part of the action in this history. It has the same basic audience. Notice verse 1. The former account, I, Luke, referring to himself, made... O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. 
We said when we began Luke that Theophilus is possibly a Gentile believer. His name suggests that, uh, that he may well have been a, a kind of a sponsor of Luke's work in writing the gospel. But even though Luke appreciates and esteems him, calling him in Luke chapter 1 most excellent Theophilus, the fact that he's not called excellent here doesn't mean that he's become in some way unexcellent. Uh, it may simply refer to the fact that uh, maybe there's a developing relationship between them. But Theophilus is the man who needs to hear these things. His name means uh, lover of God. And uh, he's not just a cipher. He's not just a figure. He's not just an idea. I think it's true to say that he's a, he's a real person, a real disciple who needs what Luke is writing. But in the lovely words of Ambrose, if you love God, it is written to you. And we need sometimes, I think, to, to put ourselves in the, in the shoes of Theophilus and to ask, why would Luke record this for him and by extension for us? I think it's useful to, to remember that this isn't just a literary device, that Luke is a discipler, he's an historian, he's a teacher, he's a preacher in his own right. And he wants Theophilus to get a grip upon these things. And so if you, like Theophilus, are by name and new nature a lover of God then the Acts are written for you also. And then it has, I think, essentially the same or at least a very similar aim to encourage Theophilus and others like him, to establish this man and us in the truths which are recorded, to equip him to serve this living Christ, and I think also to evangelise for this uh, book of the Acts is, is as full of gospel truth as the gospel was itself. If Luke established the substance of the gospel, then Acts gives us the progress of the gospel. And that's how Luke begins. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And that's a very effective summary of where we are as we begin these acts. In these verses, Luke tells us the work in which he's been engaged and the scope of that work. And he does so in such a way as to help us understand what's coming next and how it all holds together. So with regard to the work, verse 1, and then the scope, verses 2 and 3, the work itself refers back to the gospel. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. You understand now that Luke's very conscious of what's gone before and he wants us to understand what's now happening in the light of what went before. So he's given us an account, this rich, full, careful account of all that Jesus began to do and teach. And, and that phrase really sets us up. That's the springboard of this book that we're studying. 
Luke's gospel was all about what Jesus began to do and to teach. Now, for example, in John chapter 2 and verse 11, John told us there of the beginning of signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. John, when he was recording those seven signs or miracles that make up part of the framework of his gospel, this was what Jesus began to do in Cana of Galilee. There was a starting point. There was a history. There was a life that was full of these mighty deeds that were carried out by the God-man who was full of the Holy Spirit. And then there were the things that Jesus not only did, but also taught So, for example, in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17, again, there's a a sense of beginning. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And you might almost say that that really is what Luke has as the entirety of his gospel. That's the note that sounds again and again and again. That in Christ the kingdom is here. In in Christ the kingdom of God is present. And that those who are hearing him must repent in order that they might enter in to that kingdom. In chapter 2 and verse 3 of the letter to the Hebrews... The writer asks, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? The salvation that we enjoy, the salvation that we have received is a salvation that was brought to us first by Jesus Christ himself. He who is the gospel was the one who spoke gospel, good news to us. And as we see here and in Hebrews 2, passed that on to his people. So you have then this one, this messenger, this saviour, this servant of God, who is himself both God and man. And he began to do and to teach. And all of that was recorded for us by Luke in his gospel. In this Jesus, this Christ, the gospel, the the kingdom of God was at hand. And salvation itself arrived. You might remember how our Lord spoke in Luke chapter 4 from verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. What a beautiful summary of our Lord's ministry before he was taken up into heaven. Or again in chapter 7 and verse 18, when John's disciples came to the Lord Jesus, are you the coming one or do we look for another? That very hour he cured many infirmities, afflictions and evil spirits and to many blind he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. The poor have the gospel preached to them. 
These are the things that Jesus began both to do and to teach. And in him, this good news came to light. Now, it's worth remembering. You recall again in Luke chapter 2 and verse 49, when the, the young man, Jesus, the boy, was there in Jerusalem and his parents went to find him. How he responded when they said to him, we've been worried sick about you. Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Now, that statement of intent has never been revoked or rescinded. Christ Jesus is as much about his father's business now as when he was a little boy in Jerusalem. As much about his father's business now as when the, the words and the deeds of Luke's gospel were recorded for our encouragement and establishment in the truth. And that's the beauty of this opening note. This is the former account of everything that Jesus began to do and teach. And you can see that running through Luke's gospel. But Luke now wants you to understand that that was a beginning, but not an ending. You'll notice then how he speaks about the scope of that former work. It was a record, an account of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So as Luke stands on the bridge between the, the gospel that he's written and the acts that he is recording, he says that first volume carries you up until the day in which Christ was taken up, after he through the Holy Spirit had given commands to the apostles, presenting himself alive after his suffering. Luke's showing you the tipping point here between the gospel and the acts. Christ was doing and teaching on earth until his ascension. Right at the end of the, uh, the Gospel of Luke, that uh, beautiful summary in chapter 24 and verse 44 and following. The Lord Jesus has shown himself and then he says, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. There's some teaching that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And then he said to them, Thus it was written, it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. There's the climax of his doing. And that Repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And look, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. That ascension is for Luke a key point. It is the, the, the point at which the narrative shifts for Christ is no longer physically among his apostles. And the gospel record runs up until the day in which he was taken up. 
And did you notice how he begins Acts with exactly the same material? That which was in some sense a conclusion to Luke is the introduction to Acts. What happened at the end of all that Jesus began to do and teach is the springboard for all that Christ continues to do and preach. My friends, the ascension of Jesus Christ, and again, uh, we're not trying to say, well, the incarnation somewhere down here in the pecking order. Uh, the crucifixion, well, that's the big one. And, and then where do we put the resurrection? And, and somehow the ascension's over here. I'm not trying to sort of rehabilitate the ascension. But I want you to see that for Luke, it's a critical point because it has to do so much with the the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon the church. This is where Christ is no longer with us physically. This is what John records when the Lord Jesus says, it's good for you that I should go away. How can that be? Because now Christ will be with us in a new way. There is a new phase of ministry that is beginning. And Luke understands then that this divine act is the identification and the vindication of Jesus as God's Lord. Remember Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit down at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. When Christ rises from the dead, he is declared to be the Son of God with power by that resurrection, Romans chapter 1. When Christ ascends into the glory, swallowed up by that bright cloud, it is the vindication of all his claims to be the true Lord and the absolute and sovereign King of Kings. Luke understands the significance of the ascension. It's why he finishes with it. It's why he refers to it twice and describes it again here in Acts and chapter 1. So the scope of that work was what Jesus began to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up. And then there's this after language. You've got until, but it was after what had he done up to that point that is so significant for Luke as he begins this second volume after he through the Holy Spirit had given commands to the apostles whom he had chosen to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now, what's Luke referring to? What is this instruction? Well, our Lord was always instructing his disciples. He was always teaching them in the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, in Luke chapter 4 and verse 1, Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And then, in verse 14, Luke, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out throughout all the surrounding region, and he taught in their synagogues. Then he comes to Nazareth, verse 18 again, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. As Christ begins his public ministry, the Holy Spirit is upon him. In the language of John, who saw, John the Baptist now, who saw the Spirit descending and not ascending from him. That this is the, the richness of the Spirit's indwelling in the incarnate Son. 
And then having chosen his disciples, which again he did remember how he prayed before the choosing of the disciples, knowing that one of them was going to betray him. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 1, uh, Mark chapter 3 gives us a slightly uh, more detailed, but he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Christ had his eye upon these 12 men. He was always teaching them. He chose them and he equipped them by his spirit. But I do think that Luke probably has, because of his focus on the ascension, as the risen Christ deals with his disciples, I think he has in mind particularly that sense of commission which we've just read at the end of Luke's gospel. Whereas one who is risen in the power of the Holy Spirit, one whose glory is beginning to be manifest now in a way that it was not up to this point. This is the, the, the heart-burning sense that the disciples have as the Lord Christ instructs them. This is the wonder of what he has done. He tells them, as one who, remember Matthew's language at the end of Matthew chapter 28, one in whom all authority dwells, to whom all authority has been given, there in the majesty of his risen dignity, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem and you are witnesses of these things I think that's the kind of language and experience that even more than his their, their three years of teaching burns itself into the souls of these men here is Christ in his majesty here is the man who has come back from the grave here is the living saviour with the marks of his crucifixion still in his flesh and as one who has been granted and is now demonstrating the authority of him who rules over all he says you go and make disciples of all the nations you baptize them in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit and you teach them to obey all the things which i have commanded you and behold i am with you always even to the end of the age this is where Christ formally commissions these men as the representatives of the King of Kings. They have been trained and now they are sent as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. In that sense, a measure of his authority has been put upon them. When these men speak, their king is speaking. They're not just telling us things that we might want to know about the King of Kings. They speak on behalf of the King of Kings as those who have beheld his risen glory. They are in that sense eyewitnesses of his majesty. They've touched, they've handled, they've seen this one, God in the flesh. But there's a further point of reference here. Luke tells us it was not just after he through the Holy Spirit had given a commandments to the apostles whom he'd chosen... But these were the men to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. Luke's brilliant, isn't he? He doesn't 
just say, now you need to remember that Jesus died and rose again. He just, in the best sense, assumes it. He presented himself alive after his suffering. Luke doesn't feel the need to persuade us in that sense that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He's done that in the gospel. He's shown us these things. These are the things most surely believed among us. Having died, he rose, says Luke. Brothers and sisters, is it that sweet and simple for you? You have a Christ who, having died, rose again. That because you have this Bible with this spirit-inspired truth, that when you think about those many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, that you can simply sit here this evening and say, I have a living saviour. Christ is enthroned on high. He suffered. He rose. He ascended. He reigns. And he's coming back. Again, I love the simplicity of Luke's language. He presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, many plain indications, many convincing and decisive evidences. We don't need to question the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We don't need to be in doubt with regard to these things. The story of the resurrection, the reality of the ascension, brothers and sisters, that's not smoke and mirrors. That's not fables and fantasies. Christ came back to the men who knew him best and he showed himself alive after his suffering, after his crucifixion. What a world of woe is caught up in that one word. All that awful record of his mistreatment at the hands of both the Jews and the Romans. Then the awfulness of his dying there upon the cross under the wrath of God as well as the object of the hatred of men. And after all of that, He came back alive to his disciples and showed himself to them and and spoke to them again and again. Remember what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Beautiful matter-of-fact language. Brothers, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve, After that, he was seen by over 500 brothers at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then, last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. He walked with these men. He talked to them. He ate and drank with them. He held out his hands to those who were most inclined to doubt because they hadn't been where they could have been when they should perhaps have been there. And he said, Thomas, do you want to know that it's me? Then reach out and put your finger into the nail holes that are still in my hands. 
Come and put your hand into this spear gouge here in my side. So that Thomas, cursed perhaps by being called the doubter, with words of rich faith, falls down before the man who had been dead but is now living and says, my Lord and my God. He was seen by them during 40 days. That doesn't mean he was always there for 40, 24-hour days, but it's John's language again, the beginning of his first letter, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life. The life was manifested. We've seen, we bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Not it was, but it is because he who died rose again from the dead. Again and again they saw him. And when they saw him, Luke tells us that he was speaking of the things that have to do with the kingdom of God. You ask, well, what else would he have spoken of? We get little snatches of that, don't we, at the end of Luke's gospel. The things having to do with the kingdom of God. It makes you hungry for more, doesn't it? When you you read those uh, overarching statements, how he opened up all the scriptures concerning himself. He impressed upon these men after he rose from the dead and before he went up into the glory to sit at God's right hand, the reality of God's redemptive rule on earth. He impressed upon his disciples the fact that God in Christ by the Spirit will be reigning in the hearts of men. Christ spoke to them about the origin of the kingdom. He spoke to them about the establishment of the kingdom. He tied it all together in his own finished work. The nature of the kingdom of God. Perhaps driving home that his kingdom was not of this world. He spoke of its foundation. He spoke of its progress. He would have described something of its beauty and its stability. The king spoke about his kingdom so that his representatives would be able to go and speak on his behalf. Now, even at this point, they still did not understand it. Drop down to verse 6. Before he's ascended, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You can imagine the risen Christ saying, I could say to them what I said when they said it's because we didn't have any bread when they crossed over to the other side. Have you been with me so long? Do you not understand yet? But no, he is about to demonstrate to them that this kingdom is not a kingdom of political power. It's not a kingdom that is established on philosophical notions. It's not a kingdom that proceeds by way of some kind of social reformation or revolution. This is spiritual reality. This is heavenly truth. This is Christ, the chief cornerstone, and he's equipping and directing and laying out the lines for the foundation of his kingdom built on the apostles and the prophets. Between his resurrection and his ascension, 
when he appears to these men, and as we've said, we've got glimpses of these things, he's speaking to them about the kingdom of God. What is Luke's point? As he steps back and, as it were, with a sweep of the hand, says to Theophilus, now remember what we've already covered. That's what these first three verses are. Remember what we've already done. He's going to go into a bit more detail. But I gave you this former account of everything that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. He's telling Theophilus that was not the end. Luke's gospel was only the beginning. Jesus, the risen Christ, is still doing and teaching. The mode of that may have changed because he is no longer physically present. He has been taken up. But still, by his Spirit, through his appointed servants, through these apostles, these messengers, these representatives, the Lord Jesus Christ is working in the here and now. And I emphasize again that that has never been rescinded or revoked. Remember how John in the island of Patmos thinks of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. My friends, let us not lose sight of the fact that Christ, the living Christ, has ascended and is reigning. And he was at work by way of his apostles through the Holy Spirit. And this is our foundation. This is our inheritance. The apostles have ceased. Their foundation-laying work has been accomplished. And so the works of the apostles have ceased. But the record of their teaching and their doing, and the way in which they carried out the commission of Christ, oh, I hope we'll see more of this as we work through. But there are thrilling passages in the book of the Acts where the apostles quite readily, quite reasonably, convincingly and with assurance, they take to themselves the kind of language that is used of the servant of God. And they say, this is now his work by us. When we do these things, he is at work. As we lay this foundation, it's his foundation. As this truth is spoken, it is his truth. As these mighty acts are done, it is the demonstration that Christ is with us, that the living Saviour is still at work. And my friends, you and I are part of a Christian and an apostolic church. That doesn't mean that we have living apostles but we have the living Christ and the apostles whom he gave to us. And in that sense, there's a real succession. And we are still the inheritors of the traditions that were given by the apostles. We're not reaching any higher than that. We're not looking for anything other than that. We have everything that we need. Because Jesus began to do and teach. And Jesus finished all that he wanted to do and teach. And Christ continues 
by the, the records that we have of these men to do and to teach in his kingdom. If you're a Christian, you're trusting in the Jesus who died and rose, of whom Luke spoke. If you're a Christian, you're trusting in the Jesus that Theophilus trusted in. If you're a Christian, you are truly apostolic. Some of you have heard me say it before. I get frustrated with the way so much of the vocabulary of this is abused and taken away. I want to say to people, give me my words back. Give me my labels back. We are an apostolic church. We are a Pentecostal church. We are a charismatic church. And we believe that more richly, more fully, more entirely, more completely and more wonderfully than those who today take those labels and who leave us with what sometimes seem to be the scraps. That's the, so much the emphasis of so many of these uh, different uh, traditions. Let's, let's dignify it by calling us that. Now, we have the Holy Spirit. We have the apostles. We have Pentecost. We are the continuationists. My friends, we are the completists. We have the risen Christ who by his spirit has laid a foundation, who poured out the spirit upon his church and who never took it away. We're not waiting for something else. We want more of what we've been given. We have these blessings for ourselves. We belong to the same kingdom that the apostles belong to. We're part of the same living body of Luke together with Theophilus. We enjoy the Holy Spirit's presence and power. The same Spirit who was at work in these men having been given by Christ Jesus. The ending of Luke overlaps with the beginning of Acts because this is simply a new phase in the same program. Luke is everything that Jesus began to do and to teach. Acts is everything that the Lord Christ continued to do and teach by his apostles through the gracious spirit. And we need it for the same reason that Theophilus did. We need it to establish us. We need to know what Jesus continued to do and teach just as much as what he began to do and teach before his ascension. We need this because it is for us our inheritance, our truth, the reminders of these realities. We need it for our encouragement. We must be careful as we proceed through the Acts of the Apostles because this is narrative history. And uh, someone has, has said, narrative is not normative. That doesn't, it means that you shouldn't read every story in the Bible and then say, well, that's just how it should be for us. And so as we read of what the apostles did in the power of the Holy Spirit, we need to understand where we sit in the history of redemption after the apostles have been taken away, having laid the foundation. And yet, it is the same spirit, is it not? It is the same gospel, is it not? Has Christ ceased to do and to teach? Is the Lord no longer on his throne? Did his reign end with the passing of the last apostle? Or is he not yet 
at the right hand of God, waiting until his enemies are made his footstool? Is he not still interceding for us? Is the great shepherd of the sheep not still governing and guiding all things for the glory of his name and the good of his church? I think this is one of the the particulars I fear sometimes, and it's easy sometimes to speak of the church, but what about this church? Do we believe that the risen Christ is still at work? Do we believe that what God has done in days past, he is well able to do again by the same gospel, by the same truth, by the same power, and to the same ends? We need this to equip us. Again, I think perhaps we have surrendered too much to some of those who have taken our language and perhaps even some of our theology from us. You know the language perhaps of cessationism and continuationism? Now how is that popularly used? If someone says, well, you're a cessationist... The way that's often employed, particularly by those who are applying it to us from outside, is that you believe, in essence, that the work of the Holy Spirit is over. Strictly speaking, the language of cessationism identifies the fact that the apostolic office and gifts have ceased. My friends, we are full-orb continuationists scripturally bounded and directed. We are those completists. We believe that the Holy Spirit has been given. We believe that in praying for him, he can be granted to us in particular measure, that there are things that we already possess which we want to know more, that we have, to use the language of Ephesians in chapter 1, we have the down payment of the inheritance. And as you read through the book of the Acts, there are these wonderful episodes. As you see the gospel going forth from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, when the Spirit's reality is evidently present, and again and again there are men and women who are filled with the Holy Spirit. And we want that. We want more of him whom we have. We want to dive more deeply into the depths of God's wonderful truth. This is the same spirit who still gives graces and gifts to his church. This is the same Christ who still bestows pastors and teachers upon the congregation. This is the same spirit by whom the gospel was preached in Corinth and Thessalonica and Philippi and Athens and Galatia and uh, to Timothy and Titus or through them in, in Crete and or Ephesus and uh, Colossae and Laodicea. I'm going to run out of all the possible. But this is the gospel that was proclaimed. Don't we believe that the same gospel that ran through the ancient world in the power of the God who has declared it to be his power for salvation to everyone who believes is the same gospel by which we ourselves have been saved? Don't we believe that we can preach it in Crawley in the 21st century with the confidence that God, who saved multitudes then and since, is still able to save his people today? My friends, we need the book of the Acts because it is the reality 
which we want. It is the air which we breathe. And it will teach us, equipping us to be true evangelists. There's so much gospel in the book of the Acts. There are sermons that are preached. There are testimonies that are given. There are records of salvation that are granted to us. You see, not just for your encouragement, but for your instruction, the way in which the good news of the risen Christ in his power rolls out from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In that sense, it is properly programmatic. And it will help me and it will help you to know not just who we are, but where we go and what we say when we get there. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his sufferings by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And Luke wants Theophilus, and Luke wants us to say, really? That's what he began to do and teach? I cannot wait to hear what he did next.